Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. keep it pretty uh, casual here today. So uh, if you are trying to figure out whether or not you like this place, I want to tell you a little bit about us. Uh, a couple of things. One, we are a, a church that takes a lot of pride in serving. We, we get connected. And uh, when you join this community of people, uh, what happens is, is like you kind of catch the heartbeat of it. There are fairly very few people who, who just sit, who do nothing. Everybody in here is doing something to help bring this church alive, and, uh, and we, we, we try to serve together. And so uh, one thing I'm excited about here at Inspire is we've been celebrating and preparing and planning for a, a new thing here at Inspire where we're partnering with a ministry or an organization called Family Promise. And today is our, uh, today after service, we actually have people who are going to be coming to our facility and living here for the week who are home insecure uh, and uh, we're excited about that. There's been a lot of people who've done a lot of planning, and uh, this week, actually, there's only one family coming, uh, and so I was like, kind of, it sounds kind of bad, but I was like, oh man, I was really hoping there's gonna be like lots of families coming, but it also means there's a lot of people, or there's fewer people who are homeless this week, so that's always a good thing, right? So we will celebrate that. Uh, so thanks to everybody who's been a part of that with us. We are excited, and we'll be doing this once a quarter, so uh, a few times a year, there'll be families coming to stay in the space, and it'll be different every time. And so we've, uh, we've done a great job. Uh, Sarah, our team lead for that, has, has planned well, and it's kind of an exciting thing. We started talking about this back in February, and uh, so today is our day. Uh, we have also been doing a series uh, called God of the Underdogs, and uh, as I uh, Brad was here last week, and he talked and told you that this week he's going to be gone. We we did we've done six weeks of this conversation. The first three weeks kind of did, they were like with all inspire people, uh, and then the, the last three weeks we are partnering with uh, our sister church down at Great Commission. They are down by the fairgrounds. Pastor Malachi was here last week, and you got to hear a little bit about his story. And uh, I was actually at their church last week and got to spend some time with them, and it was a lot of fun. And then today, Pastor Brad's down there with them, and I'm here, and Malachi, I think, is down there. See, I don't know where Malachi is. I'm hoping he's at his church. Uh, but uh, I'm not in charge of him, so he could be running off. Who knows? Uh, so anyways, uh, we're, we're kind of excited. Today is our last uh, teaching in this six-week series called God of the Underdogs. And what we've been talking about is quite simply, there are all sorts of excuses that people use to name, title, label themselves as an underdog, as, and are, they become reasons why they think that God won't work through their lives, won't do something uh, with them, and that they, they kind of effectively write themselves off or write themselves out of the story of God. But God is actually wanting to use people who are the underdogs. And, and we've heard stories like Gideon, who uh, God literally like shrunk down his army. So he had fewer people in his army to go on and take on these people. Uh, and they were outnumbered tremendously, and they were led to victory by Gideon. And God did some cool stuff. And uh, I, I love that. Did you guys pay attention during the video where it says, or so one of the excuses that we say our, sli- our chances are too slim? And it has a little ball roll down the hill and it takes off into like this chasm and it feels like if you've ever taken on something bigger than what you ever thought you could take on and you thought, man, I'm not sure we'll actually get this thing off the ground, this is a great place for you. Because we are a story like that of just a group of underdog people, of people who, who are taking off of the story that they believe God is at, our, at, the, at the helm and God is working. And sometimes it looks like you're just taking off into to the unknown. And it's been amazing to see how God has worked, how God has moved, how God has brought us through. He's even brought us to this space today. Uh, and uh, this space alone, I mean, we talk about this space a lot. But like The space that you are sitting in alone is a story of God working through a group of underdogs. Uh, we renovated this space by ourselves, which was probably not a great idea when we first started. Uh, but we didn't have options, and we just went for it, and we just got after it, and God did some cool stuff through it. And, you know, there's all sorts of things about our story that feels like an underdog. You have probably at some point in your life felt like an underdog. 
Like you've looked at the odds and you thought to yourself, I'm not the best candidate for this position. I'm not qualified. There's other people. I don't make enough money. I'm not cool enough. I don't have all the credentials. I'm not connected to the right people. And in regardless of however you've tried to explain yourself out of the story of God, God says, no, 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 I need you. I want you. You need to be plugged into what I'm doing. And I'm going to use your unique abilities to make a difference in the story that I'm writing and I'm telling about this particular community. Today, we're going to be looking at a, a, a different uh, a different character within the story. And I want to tell you, uh, uh, this guy is a guy who was labeled very quickly. He was given literally a name by his parents that I think almost set him up to be working uphill for the rest of his life. Now, we don't hear this name now and think of this name as being someone who is uh, an uphill fighter because you know his whole story. You know the full trajectory. Like, you, you've heard a lot about this particular name. Some of you may have even named your child after this person, which is a general rule. I have said this during this series. If the name that we talk about in church <clears throat> is one that you've heard, it generally means they were important or they did something unique. Like no one was lining up to name their kids Mephibosheth, <laughs> right? We talked about him. Like, I don't know, somewhere he got left off. Like, you know, we love like a good Mark. You know, we love a good Peter, a Paul, a Mary, <laughs> Isn't that a band, Peter, Paul, and Mary? Uh, <clears throat> sorry, my mind goes places. See, Alan, you told him. You told him. Uh, you know, like, you've heard those names, but like this guy's name, his name is Jacob. Now, Jacob was given a label by his parents, and, and, and that label meant something to him. And I understand, like, sometimes we think of our names, uh, we, we don't necessarily have this deeply ingrained in our culture like, that, like it was in it before, uh, because like, I'm not always sure. I think my name, Matthew, means a blessing, which I know some of you guys would refute that. Uh, but, you know, like, we don't always know. Our names weren't given to us necessarily with, like, this deeply valuable meaning that, we sh that our parents just kind of said over and over. Now, some of us were, and that's fantastic for you. The rest of us, maybe we didn't feel that way. I don't know. Uh, uh, so I, I'm not sure that that really matters. But we have other labels that get attached to us. Uh, like for some of us, you, you know, uh, you have another label that you identify with, and it's not necessarily uh, your first name, but it could be, you know, the job that you do. It could be where you're from. Uh, you, you could be a, a uh, person from the sticks. I like to call those people my people. We're hillbillies. Uh, I watched enough Ozark, which I know some of you guys might not think that that's a show you should watch. Uh, so this isn't a, a, a direct and whatever... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Endorsement of the show. But I did learn there's a difference between calling a redneck and a hillbilly. And uh, so I, I like to be called a hillbilly instead. Uh, and now I know there's a difference. So uh, anyways, that's a label that maybe you have that's attached to you. Some of you may have been raised in a, in a home where you felt like we were poor or we didn't have enough. And one label that I attached to myself really early when I was young was athlete. Now I know some of you are like, What? Yeah, I loved sports. Sports were my thing, and they still are. I just watch them more than participate. Uh, and I had placed so much of my intrinsic value in what I created on, and as an athlete that there was a day in college when I was no longer going to play sports where I had a, like a miniature identity crisis, like where I'd always thought of myself as a basketball player. And when that day came to an end, I felt like, oh, dear goodness, now what am I? Who am I? Uh, some of you guys have probably experienced something like that where you've always had a job or you've always had a career path or something like that that you saw yourself or identified with and then suddenly something changed and you had to re-identify yourself. You had to figure out who you were. I have a friend who had a, a, a chain of restaurants. Uh, his name was on the restaurant chain. And when he sold the restaurant chain, he went through a, about a year and a half worth of identity crisis trying to figure out who he was because he was no longer that guy. He was doing something else and it just didn't feel right and it just felt like he wasn't being himself. You can see sometimes labels aren't just words. You know, sometimes they're, they're more than that. They become identity. <clears throat> you get attached to a, a label that then takes on value of who you are. 
You see, other times we label uh, other people, and sometimes we label ourselves, and those labels can shape how we see others and ourselves in a tremendous way. Uh, And here's the other thing. Not all labels are really easy to move past. Some labels stick with you. Like you think you've relabeled yourself, you've, you've moved past that, and then you find yourself moving back into it. You know, like uh, you, you, you say, you know, I'm no longer going to be unfit. I'm going to start working out. I'm going to start working out. I'm going to start working out. And then you go do your thing for a minute, and you find yourself wandering back. Like there's all sorts of labels that just kind of you find yourself returning to and trying to move past. And obviously not all labels are positive, right? So you can find yourself stuck now, you get what I'm saying with all these labels? Like, sometimes when we, we give ourselves those labels, those tags, and we can get ourselves stuck in them. It's kind of like this guy that we're going to be talking about. His name's Jacob. Now, Jacob, uh, I'm going to give you a flyover of his story. If you come here regularly, you know I call this the New Revised Gaylor version. Uh, my last name is Gaylor, so it's a, it's a different translation, okay? Uh, and so, Jacob was a twin, he was born second, so he wasn't the firstborn. And in Genesis chapter 25, it tells us the story when the time came for his mom to give birth. There were twin boys in her womb. When the first came out, it, I, love the, I love how they just like throw some like random facts in there, which you think are random, but which actually are kind of important. Uh, uh, there were twin boys in her womb. When the first came out, it was red. How does that happen? You have a red child? I think it meant like had red hair because his whole body was like a hairy garment. Uh, yeah. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. Uh, you've heard that name. Yeah, see? I don't think they mean that same kind of name when they name their child Harry. So Esau was born and he had lots of hair on him. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Now, Jacob means literally he grasped the heel. It's also an idiom for, uh, in the Hebrew language, which means he deceives, which is interesting, right? Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So Jacob st- starts his life with like this image of <clears throat> wishing he was the firstborn. Even as an infant, which I doubt he knew what was, going, what was at stake at the time when he was born. But it's as if he did know that like being the firstborn in this culture meant more than being second. Or he could have just... Maybe there's a little bit of galer of them, and we're competitive people, and we don't like losing. You know, like, I will be first. Uh, if you've never encountered my children in the building, uh, someday you will figure this out. They are the most competitive children in the world. Uh, they fight about it, kick each other, scream when they lose. It's a bad look, people, and I'm trying to train it out of them. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. They get it on us because both their mama and I are competitive people. So Jacob uh, starts off the story with this now. When Jacob was growing, he always wished he was the firstborn, and his brother Esau had like this, this special place within the family. And I'm going to try to put a little bit of this in the, into context for you, uh, because we don't necessarily still operate this way. Like, and now, most of the time, if you have an inheritance that's passed along, you like divide it by the number of children you have. So like if you have two kids, you take the inheritance, and you just, just kind of divide it in half, and you got two parts. If you have three kids, you divide it by three, right? In this culture, uh, it was done differently. The firstborn would get a double portion. And so if there were only two children in the family, you would divide all of your possessions by three, and the oldest would get two of the portions. I'm not a math major, but that's better than being secondborn, right? You're getting two-thirds of the inheritance, not half uh, like you would. And so if you were the second-born child, I mean, it was a big deal. Now, uh, there, was, there was a position value there, but then there was also a blessing that you were given as the firstborn, which would generally go as like your father would give you a, a unique blessing, and that blessing would be something of the nature of like, may you rule over your brothers and sisters, may you be fair, may you be kind, may you be wise, may God bless you, may, may, uh, may you grow in number, and may, you know, may your, your family grow. So this is the sort of kind of the two things that were at stake. Now, there was a day when Esau was out in the fields, uh, and, and these two guys were like, they were opposites. So you had Esau, who liked to be, in a, he was the outdoorsman, and Jacob was more of the indoorsman. Uh, Esau was more closely connected with their father, and Jacob was more cl- closely connected to their mother. 
And there was a day where Esau was coming in from the fields. He'd been out hunting or doing whatever he was doing. And he came in so hungry, he felt like he was famished and about to die. And the, the, the story goes like this. I'll read it so you can know that I'm not lying to you. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that is why he's also called Edom, which means red. Now, have you ever heard of the Edomites? If you've read some scripture, you might have heard of that name. Those were the descendants of Esau. Uh, so they, uh, he says, give me some of that stew. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, again, I'm not an economics major, but this stew is not worth a birthright. Two-thirds of all the family's wealth for a bowl of stew? I can do the math real quickly, and I can tell you this is a terrible idea. Go fix yourself a PB&J. You know, like, there's got to be something you can do for yourself. But evidently, he's so caught up in the moment, he's so caught up in how he's currently feeling that he agrees to this deal. And he says, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. Now, you don't break these swords. This isn't like, this isn't a, you know, I'll tell you this, and later I'm going to trick you. Like, your word was an important deal. This is the pinky promise of the Gaylor household. Okay, like you don't break those pinky promises. My Bronx tells me that all the time. Like, he's like, Daddy, can we get ice cream? I'm like, I don't know, man. We'll see. Will you pinky promise? Like, nope, I'm not putting my name on the line on that pinky. You don't break a pinky promise in the Gaylor household, right? Uh, my kids are five and seven. If you're wondering, like, it's not like an 18-year-old son, like, Dad? <laughs> uh, just to put some context in there for you. Uh, and so, you know, like he's like, you, you got to swear it to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up. Uh, and Esau, so Esau despised his birthright. Despised it. This is Jacob's story. This is how he's getting started. He's found a way to kind of work his way into getting at least half. He doesn't have the blessing yet, but he's got the birth right now. And Jacob wished all along that he had his brother's status. It's as if he wished he was someone else. It was as if he wished he had a different label. Remember, his name literally means to deceive. Like he wished he was someone else to the degree where he's even trying to find a way to become, to have what someone else has, his brother. Uh, and so the story continues on where uh, their father uh, was getting older and was uh, nearing his death. And right around that time is when the father would give out his blessing. And uh, so he's, he makes an announcement of pronunciation, like, have Esau come before me so I can bless him. Now, mom hears that this is about to happen. And if you know the story, you know what's about to happen. She convinces Jacob to dress up and prepare his father's favorite meal and pretend to be Esau and to move quickly so you can do this before Esau returns because Esau was going to go off into the field, kill an animal, come back, prepare the meal. And so he had some time and he had to move quickly so you can get in and get out before this happened. Now, Jacob isn't necessarily the one who's dying to do this. Like there are some limits to his deception, but his mom says you should do it and it convinces him. And so he's like, all right. And so they dress him up. Now, remember, Esau was, uh, Esau was a hairy dude. And so they put, the, the text tells us in Genesis 27 that they put the hair of animal on his arms. So this dude must have been real hairy. Right? Like, uh, so they put fur on his arms and they got him all taken care of. They put him in Esau's clothing to try to make him smell like Esau because Isaac's eyesight was failing. And so he was going to only be able to rely on his sight and his, you know, be able to hear and smell. And so Jacob gets himself all done up, has the meal prepared, and goes in before his father and tricks his father into giving him the blessing. Now, again, in this culture, a man's word was like, that was the seal. Like, we have lawyers because we kind of lost the ability to keep our word. Uh, 
in this day, you didn't have to worry about that. And to the degree, like, if you gave your word and you didn't, like, you, you did get tricked, you were stuck with it. And so he swindles the blessing out of his father, and Esau returns to discover what has happened. And he kind of goes in to his dad, and uh, his dad was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I just blessed somebody. Who are you? And he goes, well, I'm Esau. He's like, no, Esau was just in here. I just blessed him. And Esau is not very excited about his brother. And in Genesis 27, 34, it says, When Esau heard his father's word, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, <clears throat> get this, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? It's as if he's saying, like, this guy is a deceiver and his name is just right because I just can't stand him. Like, you've had that moment. You're just like, oh, I just want to give this guy the right hand of fellowship. <laughs> you know, you're just, you're not thrilled. And so uh, this is the second time he's taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, which he kind of gave him. Uh, and now he's taken my blessing, which actually, if you think about this, if you're Esau and you're hungry, wouldn't it just be nice if your brother just give you a bowl of soup? Like, what kind of dude sells a bowl of soup to his brother who's famished? Like, my brother raises his hand. I just saw a hand go up in the corner back there, and he raises his hand. See what I lived with, you know? Oh, dear goodness. He's the second born people. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> Oh, gracious. Uh, I'm not kidding. I'm standing here and I look over and there's a hand. I'm like, oh, it's my brother. Dear goodness. Like, seriously, like, wouldn't a good brother just give you a bowl of soup? No, like, he stole my birthright. Now he's taking my blessing. Uh, haven't you reserved any, reserved any blessing for me? And Jacob basically just said, or his dad says, no. I, got, I mean, I can give you a blessing. And if you want to read his blessing, I'm thinking, like, the blessing that he gives Esau uh, I didn't include it in the slides, but it's kind of like, why would you say that to your child? It's like, you're going to work hard, and your brother's going to rule over you, and basically, you're, you suck. <laughs> I mean, he basically gives him all of the worst things you can give a son, except for, like, willing him to be a Red Sox fan. I mean, like, that was, it was bad, people. So, he's, this, is the, this is the story of Jacob. Now, he, his name literally means deceiver. He's become the label he was given at birth. He's become what he was told he was. You know, this is why the, the words we say to our friends and our neighbors, our family members are important. <clears throat> if you have children, this is why the words you say to your children are so, so important. Because words create worlds. The words you say create a, a, a world for your kids. And if you're not careful, you can teach your kids accidentally to believe things are true about themselves just by the words that we give them. This guy was called a deceiver from birth. And so he grew into it. He'd been given a label and he grew into it. Now, something that's interesting is, is like he wanted to be, he was called a deceiver, but then he, he became a deceiver. And all along, it's as if it's weird because it's like this weird kind of two things are happening. One, he's a deceiver. He lives deceptively, but he also is trying to be someone else through his entire story. Now, some of that's the deception living out, right? Like, if I want to be this, I'm going to trick you. I'm going to be like this, right? But there's also a bit of it where you can just see where, like he wishes he was someone else. He wishes he wasn't that guy. He wishes he was this guy. He wishes he was his brother. And he does everything within his power to become just like his brother, to take from his brother, to become everything he always wished he was. You know, as an underdog, sometimes you can look at a person's story and you think, this guy started in second place. This guy has done some terrible things. Uh, Pastor Malachi talked about how, like, my past is too bad, you know, like, that's an excuse that underdogs like to use. Like, this dude, Jacob, he, he had done some terrible things. 
Like, could you imagine like telling your family story around the Thanksgiving table about how your dad like stole from your brother and he even tricked grandpa and like, uh, yeah, his name means deceiver. And like, this is not a, a family line that gets celebrated all that much, is it? But this is the story he's living. Uh, you see, I, I looked up, you know, deceit is an action or a practice of deceiving someone or by concealing or misrepresenting the truth. This dude has misrepresented the truth so much. He's twisted so much of his story that he doesn't even want to be who he is. Now, his reputation had become that he's a swindler. He's a taker. He's going to get whatever he can, and he's going to take it from other people. Now, he goes and he, uh, Esau basically says, well, the time's going to come and my dad's going to die, and when he, my dad dies, so will my brother. And he, is, uh, he makes this pronunciation, and their mom basically says, well, you need to jet. And so she sends him off to her brother's house, Laban. Now, the part of the story gets really strange when Jacob goes and lives with his uncle Laban. And I'm going to try to give you a flyover of it. We're not even going to look at the verses because it's, it, it's crazy. He goes off, ends up in his uncle Laban's house, and what he does is he, he identifies that there is a a gal who is, this is weird, this is his cousin, that he would like to marry. Just saying. If you read the Bible and you think there's some weird stuff in there, there is, okay? I'm just going to say it right now. And it gets weirder, okay? So he says, I want to marry your daughter. They make a deal, and he agrees to work for his uncle Laban for seven years. I will work as basically a hired hand to earn your daughter's hand in marriage. Because you didn't just marry a gal. Didn't you just like take her out to you know, the Red Robin and be like, hey, you want to get married? And it was all on her. No, the dad would basically sell her off like a piece of property, and you'd have to purchase the right to be her spouse. And so he says, I don't have much with me. Esau's got it all. So I am going to... Uh, I'm just going to work for her hand in marriage. So he works for seven years. The wedding night comes. Now, I don't know all the details. You can read this. I am not lying to you. Uh, I don't know exactly how this all happens. But Jacob, and uh, they go through the whole wedding ceremony, and the time comes where they bring the bride into the room, and, and uh, they're going to consummate the marriage. And they do so. And I'm guessing that uh, Jacob must have either not paid attention or had too much sacrament at the ceremony, or something, and wasn't, I don't know how this happens, I'm serious, but Laban sent in not the daughter that Jacob wanted to marry, but her older sister, and just kind of snuck one in there, and once Jacob had slept with her, remember his word, and the bond of your actions was a big deal, they were married, there was like, you couldn't bring your receipt and return this one. You think your uh, you think your Thanksgivings are interesting. <laughs> Could you imagine going to Thanksgiving with your father-in-law with his daughter that you didn't intend to marry, but he snuck her in on you? Which, again, Jacob was the deceiver, but look what happened to him. Now he's trying to like turn over a new leaf. You know, he's like, all right, I goes back to Laban and says, all right, I will. Uh, I'll work another seven years for the other daughter. Now, can you imagine being the one you're already, like the older sister? Uh, wait a second, what? What'd you say? Uh, help me understand that. Now, uh, so he works another seven years and gets the wife that he really wants, which then sets him up terribly, let me just tell you. Uh, because uh, this competition of having two wives, men... I know you'll agree with me. If you are married, you only need one wife because you can only handle one wife. They are smarter than us. They are better looking than us. And they can trick us. They keep us in line. And men, and this is your time to say amen and shake your head. She's sitting next to you. <laughs> See? So he's got two wives. And on top of that, they're sisters. And there's a, there's a competition happening between these sisters. And uh, it, it gets really strange. The oldest sister ends up having, a ch having child, uh, children really easily. Here's another thing. Just put this into your head and think about this for a minute. They would live in like a communal kind of setting where they would have tents 
or there might be a home and then the family, like the servants and stuff would all have different kind of living spaces all in the similar proximities. Could you imagine coming home from work, fellas, and getting into the middle of your community and looking this direction and seeing one wife, looking this direction and seeing another wife, and the tension you would feel in your home life deciding where you're going to sleep that night. This is strange, people, right? So he, uh, they start having children. The oldest daughter starts having uh, more children, and uh, she's, like, having no problems with it. Like just, and the youngest daughter can't have any sons. She hasn't been able to have birth, give birth. And so she comes up with this idea that, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of me being able to give chi- have a child, I'm going to give him my servant to sleep with so that because she's my possession. And when she has a child, it will be as if that's my child that is a gift to him. Strange. So it was complicated before. Now we've got a servant involved. So the older sister's like, okay, I see that. I'll raise you. And so she brings her servant into the mix. This dude's now got four women that are giving birth. And it's getting really tricky. Now, I tell you all this because you're probably wondering, how does this even play out? At the end of the 14 years and some time had passed on, he decided he's going to go back and, and reunite with his family. A lot of it's because he, he, he's over his father-in-law. And his, uh, his, he made a deal with his father-in-law to start accumulating some wealth of his own, basically start identifying sheep. And if they had spots, they could be his or stripes. And it kind of goes back and forth. And, and long story short, he ends up getting a lot of wealth. His father-in-law feels like this guy, he just keeps taking and taking and taking. And he identifies it as saying that maybe God's hand is upon Jacob, which would be seen by the people as, this, as a result of the blessing that his father had given him. Tracking with me? So he starts to get so wealthy, he's like, okay, we're going to go back to buying my people. We're going to leave your dad. I know you may love him. I can't stand him. We're going back. That's the New Revised Gaylor version. That's not in the Bible. Just saying. Uh, but you understand where that would come from. So they start to take off back to home. And he has this realization. I'm about to meet up with Esau. Last time we saw each other, uh, it didn't end very well. I'm pretty sure he unfriended me on Facebook. And uh, this isn't going well. Right? So he has this experience like he's preparing to go back and see his brother. And so he comes up with this idea, which is also a fantastic way of leading your family. Uh, Men, don't write this down. Uh, He decides that as we go up to meet my brother, I don't want my brother, because he might be upset, I don't want him to come and take my entire family and kill my entire family and enslave everybody, take all of our possessions. So I'm going to line them up so it's kind of a wave. So if I see something bad's happening at the front, I can kind of get the rest of my people and we can save some of the family. Is this making sense? It's kind of a strategic way of thinking about your possessions, which is your family, which is strange. I'm, I'm not endorsing all of this, okay? But I'm telling you the story. So this is what he does. He gets his, his animals out in the front, and they had this line. It was basically if they were asked whose sheep these were, whose goats these were, or whose alpacas, I don't know what they had, uh, whose are these? You're basically say, listen, this is, this is our brother, or this is Jacob, who's the servant of Esau's, basically trying to be submissive to the brother. And you're supposed to, there's a whole line you're supposed to say as they come up. And so he lines up. He's got the animals out front. Then he has the oldest daughter's servant, and her children line up in a little grouping, and they're going to go. If you were one of those siblings, you're feeling great about yourself, right? <laughs> you have a label for your father that doesn't include Jacob. Uh, then the second is the servant of the youngest daughter, okay? His favorite wife, servant. Then he sends in the line the oldest daughter, not his favorite wife. And at the very back of the line is his favorite wife and her sons. This is not wise. Could you imagine the family dynamics? Like the brothers would probably end up hating the other brothers. They actually end up doing that. Uh, I'll tell you more about that someday, some other time. We don't have time for that. Uh, All of this is happening in his story. And he has this anxious night before he knows he's going to, the next day he's going to see his brother. He sends everybody across this like river. He stays back on the other side of the river. And the, the text tells us that that night, 
instead of sleeping, he ends up being encountering a man. And it's as if it's like an angel, but the, most people believe it's like a, a representation of God. And he wrestles with this being all night long. Now, the text tells us this, uh, that this morning was beginning to come. The guy basically says, um, actually, I'll just read you the whole thing real quick. Uh, So Genesis uh, 32, verse 23 said, after he'd sent them all across the stream, he set set all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched uh, as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for this daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, and this is interesting, what is your name? It's interesting. Now, he asks him his name, and you may think, okay, well, of course, this is where you sign. Like, we fill out the form all the time, like Matt Gaylor. You know, like, you, you fill it out. You know your name. But it's, Remember the representation of this person he's wrestling was as if he's wrestling with God. His entire story has been weird. It's been all sorts of like deception and trickery and, and trying to like to finagle all sorts of weird deals. And, and, and effectively, he's trying to be somebody else. He's trying to live somebody else's story. He's even taken from his father-in-law in some aspects. Like there's all sorts of stuff. Like he's wishing he had his father-in-law's stuff. He's even got his father-in-law's daughters. Like he's, he's got all sorts of stuff where it's as if he doesn't want to be himself. I'll say it over and over and over and over. And when this man asks him, who are you? And he answers, my name is Jacob. It's as if for the first time, he's okay being who he is. He's seen his whole story. He's seen what it's gotten him. He's seen what all the trickery has gotten him. He's felt the stress and the pain. He just sent his wives across the stream, so he already knows what that's all about and what that's earned him as well. Like He can see the story and where it's gotten him, and now it's as if he's saying, you know what, I need to own this label so that it doesn't continue to own me. My name is... Jacob. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Which most scholars believe the name Israel means struggles with God. Interesting, huh? Because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And the reason why lots of people attribute this man to being a divine image is because uh, then Jacob asks, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? And then he blesses him there. It's as if like this guy doesn't need a name change. There's also a story about where Moses asks God what his name is. And he doesn't give him his name. He says, I am. Like there's a connection to the story of God stepping into this guy's story and says, your, your trajectory is taking you somewhere. It's not going super well. We've got to change this. This label that's been attached to you You've seen yourself as an underdog for so long, you don't even know how to see yourself differently. But I want you to understand something. I'm giving you a new name today. You have struggled, but you have also overcome. This is the story of Jacob, the underdog, who overcomes. You know, you see, the easy thing to do for Jacob would have been to just continue on with his story the same way it was. Like, he's already kind of an important person within the figure of history. Like, you know, you've heard the the story of he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, he's already in that position. But the reason why I think he was so important is because he struggles with God. He he takes on a new label. We don't don't usually see the name uh, Jacob without Israel very often. Israel becomes a nation. His sons, all of them, and all the chaos, that how they came, become the nation of Israel. God works through this group of people. It's as if through this story, God reminds them over and over, like, you may see yourself as a small tribe and a small nation, but I'm going to bless you. I'm with you. I work through the underdog. See, The easy thing is to just move forward the same old ways you've always done, but God wants to give you a new label. He wants to give you a new name, a new way of seeing yourselves. You see yourself as an underdog, but perhaps you need to re- 
think the way you see yourself. Because he's the God of the underdogs. God is with you. See, God enters into Jacob's story, and Jacob works hard, both figuratively and literally, to wrestle with God. Now, I want to tell you a story, and we're going to prepare for communion. See, my story is one where I told you about being an athlete. I saw myself as an athlete. Well, late in high school, I felt I had a moment where I felt like I was called into ministry. It's a long story. I don't have time to tell you because we got to get out before Northview so we can get to lunch. And... Uh, just saying, there's a lot of people over there we want to eat. So, so uh, anyways, I saw myself as an athlete, and then I felt called to ministry. And to be quite honest with you, when I first, some of you have heard parts of this story before, when I first felt called to ministry, I wanted nothing to do with it. A lot of that was because I'd seen what other pastors were like and what they did and how they conducted themselves. And, and I just didn't think, one, I could be like that, and two, I didn't want to be like that. I had seen some other people who I just felt like took advantage of their position and maybe, maybe uh, you know, I just didn't want to be like that. I'm not going to call them out too much, but it's just not what I wanted to be. And you guys probably have a similar story. You've seen something like that in your life where you're like, I don't want to be anything like that person. And so I didn't want to be a pastor, to be quite honest with you. In my first semester of college, I ran from that calling. And I attended uh, a college close to Indianapolis called Franklin College. It was a great college, uh, but they didn't have what I was actually called to do as a ministry, as a major. So I was making all sorts of compromises in my story. I knew deep down in my heart what I was called to be and what I was called to do, but I ran. It was kind of like a Jonah story. I was miserable. The, the, there's nothing wrong with that university. Send your kids there. It's great. But for me and my story, I was miserable. I hated it, and I loved playing basketball, but I just didn't enjoy being on that team. There were, I mean, everything that seemed like it should be so great was so terrible. And a lot of it's because I was running from the story that, that God was calling me to live out, and I honestly did not, in the, I knew in my head, in my heart, I knew the reason why I was there is because I was trying to avoid becoming a pastor. Now, that sounds so dumb to me now, right? You're like, uh, Why? Because a pastor to me at that time meant something that I just didn't want to be. And God had to almost give me a new label, a new understanding of what a pastor could be. And it was as if he was like telling me, like, you don't, I don't want you, Matt, as a pastor, to pretend to be like that guy or like those guys. Now, you could pretend and you'd probably be okay at it. Like, I could probably do a decent job. And I'll be honest with you, I've watched, and I do this as, as a career, you know, and that sounds weird. Uh, but I do this as a career, so I watch other people. And you study how other people communicate. And you know uh, how they get things done sometimes. Because they know exactly how to say something or just the right way to do it. Uh, they, they set stuff up a certain way. And it's almost like a, a playing on emotions uh, I know it sounds really bad, and maybe you've felt this way, and so it sounds really, really bad. I'm just being honest. I'm telling you my story, so forgive me uh, if this rubs you funny. But So I will watch, I watch these guys, and you're just like, oh, yeah, now right now they're going to do this, and that's going to cue this thing. It's going to cue these emotions, and people are going to respond, and, and it's really just a tactic. And I just didn't want to have any part of that game. Had no, it wasn't for me. And... Uh, and so I was like, you know what, but I could probably pretend really well. I'm coachable. Sports are my thing. So people could teach you, and they would. Like people would say, hey, you know, if you did this, this, and this, you could probably see this, and you're really gifted, and, and you could probably do blah, 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 and then try to teach you all these different things that might help you be more effective. And to be honest with you, I was just like, that's why I don't want to be a pastor. I'm not doing any of that junk. Forget it. Right? And uh, it sounds so bad being this transparent before you, because many of you are like, I'm never going to church again. Does that crap really happen? Yeah, it does. <laughs> and so uh, God had this moment in my life, I'm not kidding you, where I felt like God says, you know what, I don't need you to pretend to be somebody that you aren't. What I actually want you to do, I want you to be you. I want you to be who I've created you to be. I want your story. I come from a broken home. My mom had us in church all the time. My dad still doesn't attend church. Like My story has shaped who, how I pastor. And I don't pretend that I have this perfect family story where both my parents are saints. My mom's in the room, and I'll, she's not a saint, okay? Right? She's raising her hand. Maybe I am. No, she didn't raise her hand. Uh, like, like, we're not perfect. 
and neither are you. You know, and you could pretend. You could pretend that you're not an underdog. You could pretend that your story is perfect. You could pretend all those different things are just right. And you can come to church. You can wear your best-looking suit and have your best-looking clothes on. And you can put on all of those little things. But what God is trying to tell me, and I think it might be the story for you too, he's like, I don't need you to pretend to be somebody else. Brad said this in one week of this. He said, who you aren't isn't interesting but who God's created you to be is very interesting. And I have something I want you to do. I, want some, I have somebody that you're going to reach in your story and your, the way you do it. And so to be quite honest with you, part of the reason why you get stuck with me saying some random stuff all the time and, and it's half inappropriate, I'm aware, is honestly, I want to shock you. I want to shock you, get your attention a little bit. But a lot of it's just me. <laughs> Sorry. I have an inappropriate father. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I watch things and I love our culture. I love sports. And, I, you know, there's just things about me who I am and I don't want to pretend. So when I'm up here, I don't pretend to be somebody else so that when I'm out there, you run into me like, oh, he's just a normal dude. But up here, he's somebody else. I can guarantee you, if you talk to me outside this room on a Sunday, you see me at... I don't know where you see me, probably Lowe's, McDonald's, you know, all different places. I'll be the same person, I promise you, because I don't want to pretend. Now, it might look like I'm a little jacked up, because I am, and I use that phrase on purpose because here's the deal. Jacob could pretend and continue on and be who he was, and he could just keep deceiving and he could keep pretending. But God says, no, 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 you're going to be somebody different. I'm going to give you a new label. And remember the hip thing? He jacked up his hip, and it's, it's believed that for the rest of his life, he limped. And that limp, I don't think, was like a, a cool limp, you know, like a, you know, like it was, it was probably, it looked like he was hurt. He was messed up, probably as a reminder of what had happened, a physical reminder that God has changed his story, changed his trajectory, and gave him a new name. But it also was a mark that he went forward with, that he was going to be real, not going to pretend any longer. You can go along and fake it, and you can fake it and think you're going to fake it till you make it, but it never feels like you make it. You can keep faking it, or you can be real. Accept your story. Don't let it have power over you. Don't let it disqualify you. Don't let it be the reason why you think you won't make it or God can't use you. Accept your story. Live in that reality. And you may walk with a little bit of a limp. You may look like an unorthodox pastor. And every once in a while, you might make a joke that you wish you probably shouldn't have said in church. Or, you know, you, you said something stupid. Or you embarrassed your wife again. You know, whatever. And you may do that. But you'll be real You'll be authentically you, and you will make a contribution that nobody else can make to the story that God is writing in this community. So be you. Come to Jesus. Wrestle with all those things that make you and your story and uniquely you, but then allow God to relabel it, reshape it, put his fingerprint on your story, and then let it go and be told to the world. I honestly, I know that it's like some of you have had fantastic lives, and I'm glad you're here. I really are. Uh, and I know that on the outside it looks great, but inside you're a mess. I get it. I know we all are, right? But like, if you in your head think that there's all these people in this world who've lived perfect lives, and they have perfect homes and perfect families, and they've all got it together, and you're the only one on the outside, it's a lie. Everybody's got something in their story they don't want you to know. Everybody's got something in their story that they think makes them the underdog. Even that guy that's really wealthy, that's got the best job and all that other stuff. At home, you know, there's something. He just, he's covering it up. He's hiding it. Every story needs God. Yours does too. And allow him to speak into it. Today, we're going to wrap up this service. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And I've been long-winded already. I know. We've got a few minutes here. Here's the deal. We're going to end with communion. You're like, yes, we're still going to do communion, people. Sorry. Here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to invite the guys, the guys and gals who are going to serve communion. I can't remember your names, but I know you'll show up. Um, <laughs> just saying. 
We even use gloves. I, I, you're right. Here, I'll hand these to you, and I'm going to keep talking so we can get out of here. The uh, communion has been a, a mark or a celebration within the gathering of Christians for centuries. And it's a symbolic meaning about what God invites us into. And today we're going to celebrate these elements. And there's, there's bread, which Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. He says, take it and remember me. And the bread was his life, his gift, his offering to you. Today, I'd like us to see this because it is quite real. It is an offering that's like, hey, this is what your story has been. Perhaps you need to allow God to re-speak or speak new words, give it a new label, a new name. For others of us, uh, we, we just need to be thankful for the offering he's already given us. He takes this wine and he holds it up. He says, this is my blood, which was poured out for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And the wine was symbolic of his, oh, you already have one. How'd you do that? Man, I told you. He, he takes these elements and he says, listen, when you take these things, I want them to be a reminder of what my life has given you. So today, in this space, uh, we're, we're not going to try to make this into like some deeply holy spiritual moment. The guys are going to play some music, and it's going to sound great, I'm sure. But like, the reality is, is that there's a God that has created this world, and he wants to speak a new word to you today. It could be healing. It could be a revitalization. That's a big word for me. You know, it could be, you know, it could be something that no one else in this room is dealing with. But he has something for you today at the table. And he invites us all to come to the table. All are welcome. So at, at Inspire, we have open communion. And what that means is, like, if you want to come to the table, you can. There's no other pre-qualifying conditions. We're not going to have you, like, sign your name in blood someplace or anything weird. You can just come. And I believe that God of the universe will speak and work through these elements today. And so I'm going to invite the guys to play. I'm going to say a word of prayer here in just a second. And then uh, when you're ready to come forward, I want you to come and I want you to receive these elements. And when you do so, may you be reminded of the gift that God is giving you. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.